Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Scott Malone. I'm a journalist with Reuters News here in Boston, and I am today's moderator. This event is a collaboration of the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health and Reuters. Uh, today's program, Ebola Update, Where Are We with vac Vaccines, U.S. Preparedness, and the West Africa Crisis, will run about an hour. We'll start with a review of where we are in controlling the epidemic, and then, the, and then project where we are headed. Uh, we'll take questions from the online and studio audiences, and we'll also roll in some video clips from Reuters. Uh, if, you have, if you're watching online and you have questions for the panelists, you can email them to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu or tweet them to at forumhsph using the hashtag, hashtag EbolaHSPHForum. Uh, you can also participate in a live chat discussion that's happening on the forum site right now. Uh, today's panelists, starting from my immediate right, are uh, Paul Bittinger, director of the HSPH Emergency Preparedness and Response Exercise Program and Senior Preparedness Fellow. Uh, Michael Van Ruyen, Director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative and Vice Chairman of Brigham and Women's Hospital Department of Emergency Medicine. Barry Bloom, former Dean and Professor of the, of the, at the Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease at the Harvard School of Public Health. And joining us remotely, we have Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director, and National, uh, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. Um, West Africa is currently experiencing the worst Ebola outbreak on record, which has killed some 5,459 people. Uh, the vast majority of cases have come in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. Uh, the United Nations on Monday warned that it, uh, it may not reach its target set in September of having 70% of Ebola patients under treatment and 70% of victims safely buried by December 1st. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to a brief clip, which will show you, uh, just to give you a brief out overview of uh, the outbreak and response in West Africa. The deadly Ebola virus has now killed more than 5,000 people, according to the World Health Organization. More than 14,000 people have been infected. And while Liberia and Guinea are showing signs of improvement, the WHO's Fadela Chaib says Sierra Leone is still very much in Ebola's grip. There is a trend now in Liberia showing a kind of uh, decline in cases while being reported on a weekly uh, basis. Uh, the, in some district in Guinea, there is also a kind of decline, but uh, in Sierra Leone, the numbers are still uh, very high. What I can tell you is we should stay still very vigilant because uh, things uh, tend to change very quickly in Ebola. And adding to the crisis is the spread of Ebola to Mali, which shares its border with Guinea. One nurse, a male nurse, is confirmed uh, of having Ebola and he died on 11th November. Four other are probable uh, cases of death from Ebola. In Mali's capital, Bamako, more than 90 people, including a group of UN peacekeepers, have been placed in quarantine. The WHO, meanwhile, is keeping a close eye on the crisis, hoping the improvements in Liberia and Guinea can be replicated throughout West Africa. 
Okay, and that provides us, I think, a uh, very good introduction into Dr. Fauci. Uh, Dr. Fauci, can you tell us a little bit about both the, um, the perfect storm of the uh, West Africa ep epidemic and also give us a little sense of, um, of how worried Americans should be, should be if, if we should be worried? Um, you know, at times the threat here may be uh, misperceived. Well, I think when you talk about the perfect storm of, of this particular outbreak, which is you know, but I think the 25th of 24 outbreaks that have occurred since 1976, it also relates to your second issue, Scott, but namely the, the situation in the United States and what might, could, or won't happen in the United States. When we say perfect storm, we refer to a conglomeration of factors that have allowed this outbreak to rage uncontrolled in three countries in West Africa. And the conglomeration of factors are a highly populated area with porous borders, a very weak, if not dysfunctional, health structure with the inability to do the isolation, care, and contact tracing, very few health professionals, no previous experience with Ebola in that region of Africa, together with customs of mistrusting authority, due to recent very difficult political and oppression situations there and a lack of resources. That's what you call a very, very unfortunate perfect storm for an outbreak that could possibly and should have been controlled as it has been in other outbreaks by the kind of identification, contact tracing, etc. That relates to your question about the United States. We have had cases here, as we all know, very few, a handful. But the reason why we can feel reasonably confident that if we implement our resources well, we won't have the kind of outbreak that we see in West Africa. Because if you do the kind of isolation and contact tracing, the way it was done of the contacts of Mr. Duncan in Dallas and the contacts of the health workers, that you can control an outbreak. So those are the kind of things that we talk about when we say the real extraordinary contrast between West Africa, which is suffering greatly, and the situation in the United States. Great. And uh, that, I think, also walks us very nicely into uh, the next video clip from Reuters that we'll be showing, uh, which depicts Dr. Craig Spencer, who uh, contracted the disease in Guinea and returned to New York City, not realizing he was infected. Um, as you will all, of course, be aware, Dr. Spencer has uh, since recovered, and let's roll tape. And now, the official mayoral hug. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well Thank you so much. For well everything. done. Thank you. It is a good feeling to hug a hero. Hello. <laughs> My name is Craig Spencer. <laughs> I am a physician and aid worker for Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. I am very proud to be among the ranks of more than 3,500 providers working with Doctors Without Borders to respond to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. I wanted to start by taking a moment to thank the medical team here at HHC Bellevue Hospital Center for the tremendous care and support they have provided to me to survive this virus. My early detection, reporting, and now recovery from Ebola 
speaks to the effectiveness of the protocols that are in place for health staff returning from West Africa. While my case has garnered international attention, it is important to remember that my infection represents but a fraction of the more than 13,000 reported cases to date in West Africa. Within a week of my diagnosis, many of these same patients called my personal cell phone from Guinea to wish me well and ask if there was any way that they could contribute to my care. Most incredibly, I watched my Guinean colleagues who have been on the front line since day one and have seen their friends and family members die as they continue to fight to save the communities, their communities, with so much compassion and dignity. They are the true heroes that we are not talking about. Great. And uh, with that, let's, um, Dr. Bittinger, why don't you talk a little bit about the, the complexity of the response here in the United States and um, what might be an appropriate uh, readiness strategy for, for U.S. hospitals? Well, I think Dr. Spencer pointed it out pretty well in his remarks that what's happening in West Africa is very, very different than what's happening here in the United States. Uh, what's happening in West Africa is absolutely <laughs> tragic in terms of the numbers of cases and the, the resources available uh, to treat patients, both from a public health and from a healthcare side. Uh, what's very different here in the United States is, is the resources we have available, that we have uh, quite a, a very well-developed healthcare system and a wonderful public health system. Uh, and that's why I very much agree with Dr. Fauci's comments that I think the chance of this turning into that kind of an outbreak that we're seeing in West Africa Africa is, is really remote, if not zero. Um, but it is probably worth acknowledging that, that Ebola presents a, a challenge to the U.S. healthcare system, to the public health system, that we really haven't seen before, I think, if, if we're honest, uh, that, that the degree of personal protection required uh, for frontline hospitals, the, the attention to detail for how you put on personal protective gear, how you take it off, and, and the, the way in which waste management, lab testing, other uh, aspects of care are, are different than normal clinical care is, is probably uh, hard to underestimate. Um, I think early on, uh, the messaging that, that every hospital has to be able to take care of an Ebola patient is, is partially correct, but, but n maybe not fully. I, I absolutely think that every hospital has to be able to identify and initially isolate uh, an Ebola patient. Um, and I think we've seen hospitals uh, evolve dr quite dramatically in the last couple of uh, months in how they're taking a travel history, how they're trying to identify emerging infectious disease. Um, but it's probably not uh, correct that, that every hospital in the United States needs to be able to hospitalize and care for an Ebola patient. I think we've seen strategy among hospitals and across the nation uh, evolve uh, differently from that. Um, there are certainly hospitals uh, across the country now that are uh, developing the capability to fully care for an Ebola patient uh, all the way through their hospitalization, which often is about three weeks worth of care, is, is incredibly disruptive and incredibly expensive, but there are hospitals that can do this. Um, the CDC has been very helpful. They're sending teams to those hospitals that state they have this capability to help coach them through, share lessons that have been learned in Emory and Nebraska and other places around the country. And I think the Bellevue response is a great example of that, that Bellevue was not particularly dedicated to be a biothreat hospital before for this case went through good training, has, has put a, an enormous amount of effort into their biothreat readiness um, and, uh, and was safely uh, able to care for, for Dr. Spencer uh, without a single healthcare worker becoming infected uh, and uh, obviously with his wonderful outcome. Um, so, so I think the, the U.S. health system is evolving. I think we still have more evolving to do. Uh, the amount of money that, that hospitals have spent to be ready for this is absolutely enormous. Uh, millions of dollars per hospital in many cases. Um, that's probably not sustainable 
for uh, a disease where you're not actually hopefully getting patients uh, with that uh, with that with the disease. So I think what we're going to need to start transitioning to is is the concept of a smaller subset of hospitals with true biothreat readiness that can do this in a more sustainable and a in a long-term fashion beyond the next 3 to 6 months. Uh, but still ensure that every hospital across the country maintains vigilance, maintains readiness to identify and isolate patients with not just Ebola, but whatever the next emerging infectious disease is going to be. Great. And uh, with that, um, that, give, that gives us the, the, the national context. Uh, Dr. Van Royen, why don't you talk a little bit about the, um, the, the global response, how it's been coordinated, and, and what it looks like back in the States when, when healthcare leaders make the decision of, of whether to deploy you know, resources to affected areas or not. Thank you, Scott. And we're, we're facing the, the, the difficulty in mobilizing U.S. Uh, healthcare assets to deploy to the Ebola-affected areas um, precisely for the reasons that, uh, that Dr. Bittinger has talked about, and that is the complexity of the response here, the, the fears that we have here, and the sort of expense that hospitals are facing have really impacted our ability to mobilize our healthcare professionals into, uh, to work abroad. There's um, many factors that are have hindered and slowed the response to uh, scale up the, the response to the Ebola epidemic in um, the, the three primarily affected countries. Um, certainly, uh, as Dr. Spencer noted, MSF has probably been the biggest player. I mean, they have over 300 um, expatriate staff and over 3,000 international staff, or I'm sorry, national staff that are working in their various facilities. Um, as of m the middle of October, there were really only four um, NGOs who are working, international NGOs that were working in Ebola treatment centers, four. So it was actually very few. Um, now there's, they've scaled up, so there are additional NGOs that have scaled up, and the response is now, I, I think, able to take on uh, a little more um, uh, velocity. Um, also, the, uh, the UN Mission for Coordination, UNMIR, which is the, uh, the UN Mission for e Ebola Emergency Response, is taking on a, a coordination role. Um, this is a, an extension of the UN cluster system. So the cluster approach has allowed organizations to coordinate um, on the ground, particularly around issues like logistics and health and security and others. Um, I'd like to dispel a bit of a myth, and that is that whenever people hear of many organizations scaling up and trying to go to a place um, like Sierra Leone or Liberia to, uh, to work in this setting, um, there's the general perception that it's all poorly coordinated. And actually, I would say that this is um, not necessarily the case at all. I think that there are few organizations that really have the capacity to scale up, and those organizations know each other and can coordinate fairly well with each other, and UNMIR is a, is a good mechanism to do that. It's, it's not like Haiti when there was 10,000 new organizations in the first month of the crisis, for example. Um, so I think we have uh, a lot of, um, I guess, uh, scale-up capacity, and we're starting to see it now where organizations are finally getting on the ground. There's a decent logistics structure. The military is um, getting in place and helping manage logistics. Um, the UN resources are managing their logistics uh, and their supply chain as well. Um, and there are things that we have talked about very early that needed to be in place, like an air bridge to, to mobilize um, healthcare workers back if they got sick, for example. Um, you know, payment for health workers that are working abroad, funding for appropriate sort of supply chain, et cetera. Um, I think there are significant challenges, and I think we'll probably cover challenges in a minute, but the, the, the one that specifically relates to, to Paul's discussion is that um, still qualified healthcare workers, international healthcare workers are in great need. And, um, and our ability as, a, as a, the medical institutions in the U.S. have been 
um, hampered, I think, by the perceptions of risk that are there, the real risk versus the perceived risk, and also by the, the, um, oh, the, the significant disruption that uh, can take place when somebody comes back and after a potential exposure. Um, that has made it so it's very difficult to mobilize healthcare providers to work with these NGOs in the field. That's the, the most uh, difficult to obtain assets so far. And there are other challenges that we can discuss if you like. Great, fantastic. And uh, obviously as we're here at Harvard today, uh, we wouldn't overlook the role that um, universities and, and the acad academic institutions can, can play in the response, both in terms of training, resources. Uh, Dr. Bloom, can you just offer us a little bit of a look into that? Uh, thank you, Scott. A week after WHO uh, declared Ebola uh, uh, a global health emergency, uh, Mike Van Royen, who was head of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, uh, invited um, 10 ambassadors from West African countries, ambassadors to the US, to come to Harvard on short notice. And the agenda was how could Harvard be helpful to them and their countries in this epidemic? And um, in addition to the obvious request for supplies and personal protective equipment, I certainly was surprised when the ambassador from Sierra Leone said what we need is training, training, training. That's what we do here. And I have a wonderful story that it sometimes pays off. I came back 10 days ago from a uh, meeting of something called H3 Africa, a program jointly funded by the US National Institutes of Health and the British Wellcome Trust uh, to support genetic research, particularly on diseases of Africans, uh, and create scientific networks across Sub-Saharan Africa. And the hero of that meeting, the meeting was, uh, was held uh, in Dar es Salaam, uh, was a former trainee of the Harvard School of Public Health named Christian Happy. Uh, Christian came here to work on malaria with a world expert, Diane Wirth. And the question that was interesting to them is, what are the genetic changes that enable malaria to keep coming back and elude the immune system? And at the same time, working with a brilliant young scholar at Harvard named Parta Sabeti at the Broad Institute and the biology department, she was interested in what are the changes in genes that enabled people to survive the attack by uh, viruses and parasites and pathogens historically. And they hit it off terrifically and became part of a team that really developed a diagnostic test for Ebola that was used in Kenema and Sierra Leone to diagnose the first case in this current outbreak that received a formal diagnosis. Christian heads an institute in Irua in Nigeria. His interest is Lassa fever. But Lassa and Ebola are very close. The diagnostic tests are very similar. And when the first patient came in from Liberia to Nigeria and stumbled in the airport, he stayed up all night and diagnosed personally the first case in Nigeria. And his former trainee diagnosed the first case in Senegal. Pastor, Louis Pasteur once famously said, chance favors the prepared mind. We're in the business of preparing minds, and as I said, this one has really paid off. Great. 
Um, with that, I wanted to bring it back to a, to a point that you alluded to, uh, Dr. Van Ruyen, um, the, the idea of, of real versus perceived risk, uh, particularly as is perceived within the United States. You know, we have, we've seen cases of, of healthcare workers come back and having been sub, subze, subjected to, to extensive quarantine periods. Um, on one hand, that, that is addressing a perceived risk at home. On, on the other hand, perhaps, you know, extending those um, and extending those beyond what science might say is necessary causes people to be less willing to go over there, which could cause the actual ac epidemics that we're seeing in Africa to, to expand at a greater rate. Um, any of you, what, what do you think about the, how we need to balance the, the short-term versus long-term risks in the United States? I'll just comment briefly on the importance once uh, following uh, Barry's admonition about the importance of public health. In this case, public health communication has been an essential feature of this uh, epidemic. It's been the source of uh, successes and of failures. And um, so much of the, the response that hospitals have to put together and communities are thinking of putting together um, they're, they're, are based on science, but they're also based on kind of the, the fears and public perceptions that, um, that really drive the way the public will, um, I guess, tolerate the acceptance of Ebola patients back to the U.S. Um, that, from my end, it directly impacts my ability or our ability as a, as a sort of curative healthcare institutions in the U.S. of deploying people abroad because of that perceived threat. Um, I think we're, you know, we all know and we've discussed the actual real threat, but I think the, the perception is and the impact, potential impact on the healthcare system is something tangible that needs to be addressed as well. Paul, do you have a comment? You know, I mean, I, I, th I think it's exactly right. And I think, you know, f fear can really cost lives in, in the Ebola outbreak. I think we tragically saw this in West Africa, that people stayed away from hospitals because of fear that they would actually contract Ebola at hospitals because of misinformation. And I think that we have data now as of about a week ago that, that fear has decreased the number of applications to the non-governmental organizations traveling to West Africa. So there are fewer care providers able to save lives because of a fear of stigma, of being involuntarily quarantined, uh, of non-evidence-based strategies, uh, not just for them, but for their families. Children have been kept out of school, spouses or partners have been kept away from work. Uh, people don't want to necessarily subject themselves to this. and, and that really is tragic. Uh, by far and away, that what's needed in West Africa are care providers who can who can help uh, intervene in this outbreak, whether from a health or public health standpoint, um, and misapplication of uh, of, of uh, interventions that, that aren't evidence-based really, I think, makes the outbreak worse and certainly, uh, I, I think, put, put people's lives at risk. So it's our job, certainly, as, as health and public health leaders to uh, get the word out there more, but I think people have to be very responsible in the policy realm to, to try and uh, make sure that policy adheres to the science, uh, not the perception. Great, and um, obviously, you know, this the, the, the crisis that we're seeing in, in West Africa is drawing a, a sizable international response, um, and that I think segues us very nicely into our next video clip, which will show uh, some some Chinese responders arriving in, in Liberia. More help has arrived in Ebola hit Liberia. About 160 Chinese health workers are now on the ground to build and run a new Ebola clinic. China has been under fire for not contributing more to fight the virus, but it said this week it would send 1,000 personnel. Chinese Ambassador Zhang Yuwei says this first batch of medical teams consist of doctors, nurses, and logistics people. And this is the uh, immediate uh, response uh, of the Chinese government to help uh, Liberian people to fight against uh, Ebola.
Upon arrival, the health workers had their temperatures taken and were made to wash their hands, a ritual adopted across this region to stem the virus. Liberian Foreign Minister Augustine Gafuan says he's grateful for China's help. The government and the people of China have been with us before Ebola and have been with us in spite of Ebola and have committed to remaining with us even after Ebola. So, this indeed is a mark of true friendship. The new clinic, already underway, brings China's contribution to the anti-Ebola effort there to $122 million. Great. So that's, uh, you know, more resources being, being applied to the to the problem. Uh, Dr. Van Ruyen, you, you alluded a little bit earlier to, to the idea of, of coordination uh, between international agencies. As we see more responders, explain a little bit of the, about the UN's cluster system and, and how this, these parties are managed. Sure. Well, first, as, as relates to the video, I mean, um, bravo that, uh, that we have more resources and more commitment, and certainly commitment from China is uh, entering the humanitarian sphere is um, not brand new, but relatively new. And I think um, it points to the future of the aid world in general, and that is that the, the BRIC states, you know, the, the Brazil's, Russia, China, India, um, will increasingly play a role in these responses, and certainly this is a um, and kind of an emblematic moment. Um, I think that comes with opportunity, but it also comes with peril, because the, as we all know, the aid community has been um, criticized in the past for, and rightfully so, uh, the dysfunction, inability to coordinate. Um, after the Southeast Asian tsunami um, in 2005, the UN created the cluster system. It's a, it's a coordination system that allows clusters of uh, sectors. So the health, people working in health, for example, led by WHO, people working in food and uh, nutrition led by World Food Program, and organizations that participate in the cluster system, they meet centrally in Geneva, New York, and then they also meet in the field where they stand up the cluster system and when they declare a level three emergency. This is, Ebola is a level three emergency, one of the, the record five level three emergencies in the world today. Um, the coordination system, I believe, being part of this um, dialogue, I believe it works and I believe it is actually the, the hope for better coordination, human, the humanitarian enterprise. Um, and I think that one of the sort of the opportunities and the peril of having countries like China bring their, their teams in are that, you know, they could actually sort of go off and do their own thing, but there is an opportunity that they could be briefed on and participate in the cluster approach so that they could work with the health cluster, for example, meet with WHO, um, understand the standards that are be put in place, sit next to the Minister of Health of uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, or Guinea, and, um, and be part of an organized, thoughtful, coordinated response. Great. Now, now when we talk about you know, this sort of international response, we're talking about really short to medium term fixes to, to what is, could be a very long term problem. Um, when you look at longer term solutions, you get around to ideas like vaccines and, and ways of you know, cutting off the, the, the virus before it happens. Um, th there have been some experimental vaccines developed. They're not really widely av available as of yet for, for human use. And uh, Dr. Fauci, we don't, we don't want to, to uh, neglect you. Can you uh, just talk a little bit about you know, what's out there and, and why it's not uh, widely available for, for human use at this stage? 
Well, the reason it's not widely available for human use is that there's no vaccine that has been proven to be safe and effective against Ebola. The uh, work on vaccines for Ebola started, quite frankly, a long time ago. The first work that was done by the Vaccine Research Center here at NIAID was over a decade ago with an incremental increase in the uh, efficacy in an animal model as well as immunogenicity that looked good. We had trouble getting partners in the pharmaceutical industry to get interested in a disease which up until this recent outbreak that we're in right now, the total number of Ebola cases in the 24 outbreaks since 1976 was less than 2,500. So there really wasn't a lot of incentive to do that. So it required the federal government to push the envelope on that. But having said that, right now in September, we started the phase one trial of a vaccine candidate. And in October, we started a phase one trial in a second candidate. So we have two candidates now that have gone through phase one trial. The one that was developed by the NIH together with GlaxoSmithKline has essentially finished the phase one trial, and the results are actually going to be published in the New England Journal of Medicine on Thursday. Uh, interesting Thanksgiving Day uh, present. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, embargoed until Wednesday at 5, but the results will come out leading to what we've already planned, and I have people in Liberia right now doing the infrastructure planning to start a phase two, three trial on two of the candidate Ebola vaccines. So things are moving along right now, particularly since we have pharmaceutical partners to work with us to do the kind of production. So as short answer to your question, we don't have it available for distribution because we haven't yet proven to be safe and effective, which I hope will happen in the next several months. That, that, that is a nice little tease. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll see some progress. Uh, Dr. Bloom, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, with a disease like Ebola that's, you know, come and gone in a, in a, in a large way, what's, what some of the roadblocks have been to vaccine development? I think the, the remarkable thing in this case is what Dr. Fauci mentioned. Um, his institute particularly, but the federal government's supportive research has a very wide net. We know epidemics are coming. We just don't know which ones and when. It could have been Lhasa, it could have been Marburg, it happened this time to be Ebola. Um, there's a wide spectrum of basic research, but at the end of that, when the scientists do their work and create the vaccines, when they show that they do the right immune responses in mice and guinea pigs and rabbits, and in this case, even in monkeys, there is what the pharmaceutical industry calls the valley of death. They sit there and die because they have no way of getting them tested for safety even in humans, which would enable them to be stockpiled and scaled up. So I would ask Dr. Fauci, we have a gap between what the scientific community can do in the case of not just Ebola, but in dysentery, in typhoid fever, in all kinds of non-commercial vaccines for poor countries where the remuneration is never going to come to the companies that produce it. That's the valley of death. How can we deal with that? Well, Barry, as you know, we've been trying to deal with that with vaccines, as you mentioned, that are not of great commercial value. So that's why several years ago at the Department of Health and Human Services, 
we started out of the uh, ASPA, the Assistant Secretary for Prevention and Responses office, an office called BARDER, which is B-A-R-D-A, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, which hundreds of millions of dollars have been appropriated into that in order to de-risk this valley of death for the companies. The reason you have a valley of death is the companies don't want to walk into that valley because of the financial risk of putting a major investment and not having a product that people will buy, stockpile, or use. And for that reason, Barter has been very instrumental, including in the current Ebola issue of putting in money for the development, the advanced development and ultimate stockpiling of vaccines. So we haven't solved the problem, Barry, but at least it's better than it was several years ago when the valley of death was essentially unapproachable. Great. Uh, that, that speaks to, I mean, money problems are a part of any large societal problem. Um, and obviously you have the, you know, the issues in drug development. Uh, I think another another issue that that we've all faced is um, you know short term spending versus long term spending. There's the there's the short term spending that hospitals you know across the United States do in terms of equipment, facilities, training to prepare themselves to to respond to potential uh, Ebola cases. And while it's not all the same pool, money spent on that is money that's not spent on research, that's not spent on on advances in the science. Um, how do we balance those two competing needs to under, to be sure that we have you know short term solutions, but also work towards long term solutions? Throw this out to to any of you, really. Well, I, I think I'll, I'll jump in with a little bit on the hospital preparedness side. I think. Um, the, the um, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, uh, as, as Dr. Fauci mentioned, who has BARDA, also has the National Hospital Preparedness Program. And funding we've seen has been uh, cut dramatically in that program year after year after year, uh, including 38% this year. And one of the things that could come out of that program to, to help us better with a long-term biothreat uh, preparedness strategy would be to start to address some of the issues uh, of which hospitals should be designated to be biothreat ready uh, to, to be able to care for, again, Ebola or the next coronavirus or the next whatever emerges uh, that we need to take care of in a very specialized kind of way. Uh, it'd be a much more rational use of healthcare dollars than having hundreds of hospitals across the country spending millions of dollars on their own, uh, but to develop uh, certain standalone sites that, that have a capability to be able to care for emerging infectious diseases, free up some of those healthcare dollars, which right now, again, are, are hopefully not going to be used in the sense that we don't want uh, there to be any more Ebola patients here that we have to take care of. But to have every hospital do it on its own doesn't make sense. A little bit uh, of leadership probably stimulated with centralized money, at least to develop these sites, uh, it would make a much more rational, rational approach from my perspective. Um, and, and I could say, uh, I could, I'd say the, the unthinkable, and that is that it's not always about more money. Um, it's maybe about that same money being better spent in the aid community in particular. So, um, you know, in emergency relief operations are very expensive and they always are expensive because it's a lot of logistics and expatriates and vehicles and stuff that has to go out there. Um, and uh, I think um, to be very thoughtful, strategic and um, kind of proactive about translating those funds for relief into um, capacity building very early on is a it's a challenge for the aid community in every single emergency that we uh, um, undertake uh, or we uh, do a response. Um, but I would say in this one in particular, um, investing in healthcare manpower, investing in public health infrastructure is something that will help us with the current epidemic. Um, will also help us sort of protect against the any future epidemic. So just you know, 
kind of changing some of the funding that goes into really develop public health. Right. Dr. Bill? I think we have to recognize um, that the three countries that suffer the greatest burden of these diseases are really, really poor countries. When you have one physician for 100,000 people, when you have a healthcare system that is either not developed but after 14 years of civil war in Liberia has crumbled, it is asking a great deal to imagine it can handle a stress like an outbreak of a, of a contagious disease. We focus in almost all aspects of funding health and healthcare, of funding diseases, when behind that is a fundamental problem, largely independent of the name of the diseases. Do you have a healthcare system? Do you have the right workforce? Do you have the right training? Do you have the right facilities? Do you have the logistics? Can you get drugs from the outside world into the country to the places where you need it? And there are very few donors, either countries or NGOs, that fund the development of health systems or train people how to run health systems. And as my colleagues can tell you, they're very complicated systems. So I would think um, a good investment would be both in the needs of the immediate crisis for the disease, but longer term support, particularly of the poorest countries, of helping them get effective healthcare systems. Uh, Dr. Fauci, any, any, um, any thoughts on the need to balance the, the short term versus longer term spending as, as we confront a problem of this magnitude? Well, I agree with the comments that, was, that were made by my co-panel members, but also there is an initiative now that was formally announced by the president in February called the Global Health Security Agenda which is really an attempt to put resources throughout the world, particularly in the developing world, to be able to at least early on address by identifying a threat as early as you possibly can in order to respond to it. And in fact, if you look at the framework for the global health security agenda, if we had had a modicum of that present in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, in the very early days of that outbreak, we may have been able to jump all over it before it became a real massive outbreak in three countries. So, health, and, and we should actually utilize this opportunity of the resources that we, the United States, as well as other countries, you showed that clip about China, which is very relevant, that instead of just coming in for this crisis and then getting out, is to leave some sort of a sustainable infrastructure for the people in those countries to be able to build upon so that when the Ebola outbreak is finished, we don't have to start from scratch again. Great. Okay, at this point, we're gonna open it up to some questions uh, from the audience. Initially, it'll be uh, our online audience, uh, some of who've been tweeting in and in other ways sending us their questions. And uh, what are the first ones we have? Thanks, Scott. Um, I'm glad that we addressed the infrastructure question because we've been getting a number of those. Um, I'll take this one here. What is the worst case scenario for the number of new Ebola cases in West Africa? I read somewhere that the cases could reach 10,000 per week by next month. 
At the same time, I've also read that Liberia has turned the corner and the cases are decreasing there and in Guinea, and that the WHO thinks we are seeing a downward trend. Is that the case? The press reports are confusing. Um, I'd ask Dr. Fauci this as well. I comment, I think the, um, the initial projections actually were upward of 100,000 by the holidays. I think that those have been revised because we have seen improvements that seem to be real in Sierra Le I'm sorry, in Liberia and Guinea, whereas Sierra Leone seems to be still escalating. Um, you know, I think the WHO and, and everyone has cautioned all of us not to take those numbers as, as any sign that we're actually in control of the epidemic because they don't believe we are. I think um, if you liken this to a wildfire, now there are pockets of fires all over the place that need to be put out, but the, you know, perhaps the, the bulk of the fire is at least starting to be coming under control. Um, so I, I don't know if anybody knows the, the sort of current projections anyway. Um, and I think that by the time, you know, the next quarter occurs, maybe, you know, February, March, April or something, we'll know um, if we're in far better control of the epidemic by then. But I think it'll take that long. Dr. Fauci, had you wanted to weigh in on the project projections at all? Yeah, I, mean, I think what was just said is absolutely correct about going down in Liberia, but in the <laughs> outskirts outside of Monrovia, there are still pockets that can flare up. And while that's happening, Sierra Leone is, is escalating in a somewhat worrisome way. The thing about Ebola outbreaks that was just mentioned that is quite correct is that these, there are sparks there that are a moment away from a forest fire. Um, it, this is really a classic case of it ain't over till it's over. Because in fact, unless you completely suppress it, Right now, we still have a few hundred contact tracings in Mali that we need to make sure don't explode in Mali. So you have Mali that's a problem. I think we escaped the bullet in Nigeria and in Senegal, so we better be very careful that we don't claim victory until it's completely suppressed because you can always have an outbreak such as we're still you know, holding our breath about what's going on in Mali right now. Great. Another question from online. I'll take one more here and then we can go to the audience. Have drought, deforestation, and overall climate change resulted in the spread of viruses like Ebola into human populations? Doesn't Ebola originally come from bats that are killed for food, similar to how AIDS crossed into the human population from bushmeat? Diseases like these will just continue to spread from Africa as long as people are forced into closer contact with infected animals that they consume for food due to dwindling resources. Um, they're looking at me. That, that's a dean uh, level question, right? <laughs> yeah. a, a, a decanal question. The, the population in Africa is rising faster than in almost any other part of the world. And there is a huge amount of space, but there are limited uh, resources, uh, particularly for food and, and sustenance. Um, there is a wealth of zoonoses, of infections of animals. We know from HIV, probably coming from non-human primates, uh, there's lots of stuff out there, which is why Dr. Fauci's portfolio has to be so broad. We know some of them will jump into human populations. Um, 
Um, the bats are very big animals and probably uh, pretty nutritious and easy to capture when they sleep upside down in the daytime. Um, but we don't really know all the zoonoses that are out there. Um, there is a reciprocal that I'm more worried about than the inevitable conflict or con uh, interaction between people and their environment and animals and whatever, is um, the failure because of this Ebola outbreak to plant for harvests for this coming year so that there is no question there are going to be huge shortages of food and vegetable for those who are surviving this uh, outbreak. And rather than focusing at the moment on the long-term effects of climate change, we have a potential food crisis in three countries that the world is going to have to deal with and hopefully by next year get seed into the ground with survivors to be able to produce enough to sustain the population. Thank you for addressing the food shortages because there was another question on that, so thank you. Great, and now we'll take some uh, questions from, from the audience here. Okay, thank you. My name is Elias Higue. I'm coming from France, so sorry for my English. Uh, I'm writing a book on uh, healthcare systems in West African countries. And uh, I was in Ivory Coast three weeks back, where hopefully the virus is not there yet, but it may be there in the future weeks. And uh, collecting data, my observation is that uh, all those big crises, usually when it is about healthcare, come from Africa. But the big efforts are made by developed countries like US, uh, EU, or uh, today China. So in those poor countries, the governments are using very few percentage of the national revenue for healthcare systems. So my question is, what is or what are the developed countries or international organizations like UN, EU, or USA doing to help those governments increase their budgets for the healthcare system in order to get better. If not, always the problem will be coming from the poor countries and the developed countries will be always doing their best to face the, to find the solutions. Thank you. I could take a, a, a shot at that. Uh, one of the, uh, let me just say, when I said these countries are poor, uh, the total budget of Liberia is $2 billion, the GDP the total value of all the goods and services in the country. Uh, the United States is about $18.6 trillion. Uh, that begs the question then, how do you get the resources for healthcare? So one of the surprising things that I learned preparing for uh, talking about Ebola is the country that has the highest per capita spending on healthcare in the world is obviously the United States, which is 17% of GDP a big GDP. The second highest country is Liberia that spends 15.5% of its tiny GDP on health, which doesn't buy an awful lot of health. Having said that, however, one can look at another country um, uh, in, in, uh, in Africa, that Rwanda, which has not much greater GDP per capita but has developed an extraordinarily effective healthcare system. 
um, with reductions in maternal mortality and infant mortality and reductions in AIDS and tuberculosis that are really quite striking. Two points. First is it can be done with the appropriate leadership training and uh, infrastructure and in this case health system planning. Uh, the second point is that 60% of the budget of, for health in uh, that country is overseas development assistance. And a very high percentage of even the 15.5% in uh, Liberia is overseas development assistance. So as Mike said, you've got to have the resources to get the people and train them. But you have to use the resources wisely. And we could all learn from how Rwanda has distributed resources focusing on community health workers rather than top-of-the-line specialists. Great. Another question from the room. Uh, this is a question for Dr. Fauci. Um, you had mentioned the importance of building up health systems so you would have resilience when there's future outbreaks. Um, but it looks like from the $6 billion that the administration has requested uh, for the response that it, there doesn't seem to be any uh, health system strengthening allocated in there. And there's quite a substantial portion of it that is going that is going to be spent domestically in the U.S. and for things like doing checks at airports and that sort of thing. And yeah. so I'm wondering why there doesn't seem to be any focus on health system strengthening. And then also, e even given that the current response um, with, with the, the, the promised um, uh, efforts by the, the military, I think so far only three um, Ebola treatments units have been built. So why is that also still taking so long? Thanks. Okay, so there are a couple of parts to your question. First of all, I think it's important to appreciate that the $6.18 billion that were requested is for an emergency supplement to a budget. Uh, and it was very difficult to argue for an emergency component when you're talking about long-term infrastructure building. That doesn't mean that that's still not an important item on the agenda but it wasn't felt that that would be something that we could sell to the Congress as part of an emergency package, which was fundamentally domestic. Now, I want to emphasize saying that I feel a little uncomfortable because I don't want to at all uh, um, underplay the importance of the point you're making. And I feel very strongly about it, which is the reason why I made the comment about the importance for building infrastructure. But I think that's going to come out of another budget issue as opposed to an emergency authors, uh, an emergency appropriations, because I testified to defend that budget a couple of weeks ago before the full <laughs> Senate Appropriations Committee, and it was very clear that all the questions that got asked of us is why is this an emergency? So I, I don't think we could have made a good, a good uh, argument for long-term infrastructure in Africa out of that budget request. That's just a fact of life. Uh, the other part about why it's taking so long, logistically, it just takes a very long period of time to get those hospitals built up, those uh, treatment, <laughs> Ebola treatment units that the Department of Defense is putting up. And it's just a question, I don't think that they were falling down on the job. It just takes a long time to get them up and running. If, if I may jump in, I, I think it is very important to have health systems, and we know 
that again, we need doctors and nurses to be able to treat Ebola patients. And we know that frankly, there are many, many other health problems going on right now because of Ebola that are not Ebola. It's it, maternal mortality is, is going up. Uh, it's hard to have your pneumonia, your appendicitis to get medical care otherwise. And those things are incredibly important to restore. But we can't be here at the School of Public Health and not talk about public health as well, which really is not, I think, being built. And, um, you know, the part of the way you interrupt the cycle of transmission of Ebola is contact tracing. You know who the person with Ebola has come in contact with. You educate those provider, those patients. You uh, ask them to be uh, appropriately uh, removed from social contacts with others if they develop symptoms. And it's really a public health intervention that is what puts out that fire if we continue to use the analogy. Um, and what we desperately need in especially the three countries that are affected really, especially Sierra Leone right now, is, is good public health infrastructure. And that's at least as important, I think, to the current crisis as building long-term health, which is, of course, essential to the overall success of those economies and, and the, the populations of those countries. Great. And uh, with that, I think we're going to start to wrap up. And, and what we'll do is we'll ask each of you, if you would be uh, so kind, Briefly, succinctly, one policy policy takeaway that that thought leaders, that policymakers can can take and and act on as as they think about this uh, this problem going forward, Dr. Bittinger. I, I think recognizing that emerging infectious diseases are a part of the modern world and the rapidity with which they're going to spread spread around the globe uh, and certainly get to our borders as well as anyone else's around the around the uh, world is important. We we need to have a thoughtful strategy that uses a relatively limited number of dollars as efficiently as possible so that we can have good surveillance, identification of cases, rapid diagnostic testing, appropriate inpatient care that doesn't put others at risk, and then ultimately vaccine development. This needs to be part of a concerted strategy. If I narrow that down slightly from the global perspective I just gave, I think from the healthcare infrastructure, we have to think about rationally how we're going to use our resources better than what we've done in the last uh, couple of years. Great. Dr. Van Rijn. Um, so my parting shot would be that it's, as Dr. Fauci said eloquently, it's not over till it's over. And in this case, the, um, we need to keep up the funding and the pressure and also be flexible enough to push that funding out into the community where uh, community education, basic public health is really going to be, and I've said this many times all along, that these, the fight uh, against Ebola is going to be won not in hospitals but in the communities. And so the, I would see this as you know, a potentially hopeful sign, but we have a lot of work to do, so we cannot uh, sort of pull up and we have to keep up the pressure. Great. Dr. Bloom. Uh, to quote the ambassador from Sierra Leone, training, training, training at every level from the community health worker level, from uh, training people in governments about health communications, which is a key part, as we've heard today, uh, about public health. Uh, plus technical training for contract tracing, for um, anal analysis of data to be able to know where the problems are in a country. And that's something that there is very little international or even national support for. And yet I think in the long term, that's the best investment we can make. Dr. Fauci. Well, first to underscore what Mike just said about keeping our eye on Africa, uh, we can best protect ourselves here in the United States by completely suppressing the outbreak in Africa. And let's not take our eye off that uh, prize there of that success, which is absolutely essential, not only for the people of Africa who are suffering terribly, uh, but also for our own safety here in the United States. And finally, every time we have an outbreak, 
is always everyone gets exercised about things that we should have done. Outbreaks antedated all of us on this panel. They're here now, and they will be with us long after we're all gone. So rather than responding to emergencies, we should realize that we really do have to build the capability of responding to the unexpected as opposed to trying to catch up with the unexpected when it comes. So maybe we have now three certainties in life, death, taxes, and outbreaks, <laughs> two of which are closely linked. Um, and with that, uh, our forum has come to an end, but uh, you can continue the conversation, and we encourage you to, at uh, forumhsph.org. And we'd like to invite, invite you all to join us next time for the next live we uh, webcast, Treatment as Prevention, Can We Treat Our Way Out of, an, an, out of the AIDS Epidemic? That'll be held on World AIDS Day, Monday, December 1st, at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. And thank you very much for your time. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.